0: John Steinbeck once said, All war is a symptom of man's failure as a thinking animal. This rings true, but what happens when a war is declared on an animal? Or maybe even by an animal? In rural 1930s Australia, an already desolate place made even more bleak by the ravages of a global depression, farmers were overwhelmed by a horde of emus. Emus are human-sized, flightless birds that decimated crops and left destruction in their wake. The human response to this avian invasion is now known as the Great Emu War, and the details are fascinating, hilarious, and stand for an interesting example of humans, the supposedly dominant species, running into a literal force of nature that they could not defeat. You're listening to Race and Tyler Talk Wikipedia, episode 83, The Great Emu War. Okay, Tyler, uh, we talked last episode about the movie Elvis, which we both saw, and I've been thinking a lot about it and how interesting it is that I went to, was interested by, and even understood, like, the references to music made when my dad was a child, like, 50 years ago. Yeah. And it made me ask this question, what music from today do you think people will still be listening to in 50 years? So that just for reference, that's, you know, 2072. That will be basically, we will be beyond our, you know, allotted time here on Earth, you and I, because we will be in our 80s Uh, and above the the technical lifespan for an, an American
1: male at this time. I suspect we'll both still be around. What do you think? we'll just what be we- counting the minutes at that point that we'll have <laughs> the hourglasses turned upside down yeah
0: um but what do you think in 2072 what music from today will people still be listening
1: to i love this question um and was elvis really 50 years ago wow i can't even can't even wrap my head around that because yeah really far in the future um I love this question because this is like the art question, right? How do you make art that lasts? Yeah. Or what art um, is lasting versus which art falls away that people forget about? Um, And I don't know. I have a hard time answering this, I guess, because uh, I think of like my favorite music. And I don't think any of my favorite music, honestly, is popular enough to maybe make it. Hmm. all the way maybe some of it could um so i i looked to the top of the charts so i've got three three choices uh for artists that i think could make it uh number one is taylor swift okay number two is lana del rey Ooh, i love lana del rey and number three is frank ocean
0: oh okay those are good
1: uh taylor swift makes immediate sense i'm excited to hear your thoughts on the other two well yeah and so my justification is kind of the same for all three um which is they're all popular they're all (laughs) singer-songwriter kind of vibes Mm. and they're all kind of um like moment defining you know they broke away from what was traditionally being done and ended up kind of creating like A time period yeah for me like i can't think of 2012 without thinking of lana del rey you know like Mm -hmm. is very you know i don't know uh embedded into the system sure uh and they all have a little bit of soul i think i mean i'm not enough of a lana del rey fan to know her music that well but i think she's pretty soulful taylor swift you know she's believable when you listen to her sing and Frank Ocean of the three, I think, is the most believable. He just seems like a genuine character. Hmm. Um, but yeah, I think it's the fact that they write their music and it's different from everything else. I think that's kind of what I gravitated towards. So I hadn't even thought of the singer-songwriter aspect, but
0: mm-hmm. that that makes a lot of sense. That's That's a smart thing to say because there's I think there kind of has to be some um like some myth kind of that goes along with something to last that long like Elvis Elvis is it's not just like oh this is a great song who sings this it's like Elvis lives as like Elvis a cultural
1: figure Elvis, yeah
0: <laughs> yeah and so like he had a an image that comes to mind and kind of a a, a narrative that came with him and so singer-songwriter makes sense because um Well, you know, Taylor Swift, she writes those songs herself. And when she can't cry anymore, (laughs) she
1: writes. (laughs) She writes. And so... Well, don't you think that that's the difference between, like, the Beatles and the Monkees?
0: Yeah.
1: Everyone knows the Beatles. Less people know the Monkees. But they were both kind of the same, like, boy band in the 1960s in England.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I mean, you'd probably probably recognize Monkees' music when you heard it.
1: Right, right. But no one's really going out to buy monkeys' records. Whereas the Beatles, it's like, yeah, John Lennon was writing that music. <laughs> yeah. Paul McCartney was, you know, all four of them were very involved and became kind of larger than life artists yeah and there's
0: like images associated with them so like the yeah the the abbey road uh them walking across the street that's not oh i'm i'm an anger beatles fan i can't remember is that the (laughs) abbey road album
1: i think it is i think so i'm not sure (laughs) i
0: love the beatles but are you more of a Rolling
1: rolling stones in the the classic fight or you pick the beatles
0: no i'd pick the beatles i just don't happen to recall right now i'm I'm nervous i'm getting it wrong but like there's yeah. like images associated with it like i can picture and like it can go on a like you don't see people wearing a monkey's t-shirt and no. it's kind of interesting yeah. like the alchemy that goes into that and on that note i'll, I'll kind of reveal my answer which is sort of a cheating non-answer which is like i don't i don't feel confident saying anyone because if we knew how that i, I if we knew what was going to work in 50 years and everyone would just do that. And so it kind of does feel like alchemy. Like, I don't know why the Beatles and I would say to a slightly lesser extent, the Rolling Stones just like continue to exist as an idea. They're very prolific and they did make good music, but you know, so did the who and the monkeys and all these other people. And so it's kind of a weird, um, alchemy. I remember, Um, As a kid, I I would picture this being like 1999. I was in a computer class. I was literally taking floppy disks in a backpack to a school building and using them to write stuff on. Um, And my friend had a Smash Mouth CD
1: with with,
0: uh, the song All Star on it. (laughs) And I remember hearing that song and thinking, this is the pinnacle of human achievement. Ah! The greatest (laughs) song that's ever been written. I've never heard a song that I wanted just to repeat again as soon as it's over like this. And I remember asking my dad, like, how come all, how come they don't just write all songs to be good like this? <laughs> like, how come my question was, how come every song isn't Smash Mouth's All Star? <laughs> yes, good question. And, you know, of course the answer is, well, if we knew how to do that, then we nobody would, would <laughs> nobody would write a, a, a bad song. Um, yeah. Anyway, I I really, I I like your guesses. I think, um, I suspect that you're right. I think you're on it, and I think the singer-songwriter thing is is a really good
1: instinct. Um, Well, you know what I thought of was, and maybe this is getting ahead for a second question, but who do you listen to now from 50 years ago? Oh. And I just bought two of her albums this weekend. My answer for that is Joni Mitchell. Okay, yeah. Joni Mitchell is that kind of singer- songwriter, you know, like deeply artistic, uh fully unique. And there's so few of those. Most of what reaches the top of the charts is kind of like produced stuff that like was made by a company that happened to pick Ariana Grande as the voice, you know? Mm. (laughs) Yeah. But they didn't do that for Johnny Mitchell. And uh, I don't think they did that for Taylor Swift either.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That is really interesting. I think you're right. I'm you are quickly persuading me on this. Like there's something that just feels a lot more authentic coming. And I would even say coming from an individual, like you said, singer, songwriter, even alongside like a group, like the Beatles that are writing their own stuff and have a unique voice and are kind of doing their own thing. Something about one person making music to, for you, Feels a little bit different, so I think you're right. I think solo acts might,
1: mm-hmm. might oh, as opposed to groups, yeah. Okay, that would
0: be really interesting to look at, like a an analysis of that over time. Like who, what, yeah. what, what albums are being bought today from 50 years ago? How many of them are from single artists? How many oh, of are from point. groups? Yeah. Is, uh, if only I knew a new, uh, nerd in the music industry. I know.
1: I'm already thinking. <laughs> of- <laughs> And I off the cuff, I have to say, like the best-selling legacy acts are always gonna be like Grateful Dead and Pink Floyd. It's mm. October Week and the Beatles. So those are three groups already, but interesting. But also Prince. Prince sells really well, and Prince was a solo act. So
0: Yeah, Michael Jackson's doing just fine, I'm sure.
1: Mm-hmm. Yep, very much.
0: So yeah, that's kind of my Encompasses my cheating answer, which is I, I just don't think we can know, <laughs> but but your guesses I'm 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 being persuaded those are good guesses.
1: I also thought of uh, the popular acts that I don't think are gonna make <laughs> it, and I will not mention those here, but. Uh... <laughs> Anyone can uh, send me a text and ask what I think about those. Oh, I I will need to hear those offline. And I will also say,
0: (laughs) I saw an article today on CNN that was like, it's been 10 years since size Gangnam Style came out. And I was like, is this this news? Like, why are (laughs) we talking? no. (laughs)
1: Yeah, how many people are still listening to that, I wonder?
0: Yeah, I mean, maybe we'll be eating our words in 2072 when Gangnam Style is the new national anthem of all (laughs) of North America. (laughs) Okay, so as we dive into this episode, it occurs to me that it's a little bit similar to the American Hippo Bill episode that we did in that it's a story of humans and the natural world interacting or clashing in kind of an interesting way. Um, And I realized that this podcast is like exposing my interest in this kind of topic. I'm fascinated by like humanity's histories and failures of crossing paths with the natural world, like with the animal kingdom and the plant kingdom. The American hippo bill is like right in the sweet spot for me. Like, we had this plant that shouldn't have come here and then we tried to bring an animal that shouldn't have come here and we just you know um and that's kind of a a human story we will will accidentally exterminate a species and then we'll move a species to a place they shouldn't be and it goes horribly and we kind of mess with this whole system in a way that in one perspective is like somebody goes into a beautiful garden and then is like well, let's move these ones over here and let's squash these ones and then let's feed these ones the wrong kind of plant fertilizer and let's do all this stuff, plant these ones in the wrong place. Um, And I think I'm interested in this as a concept because it's easy to think of um, this kind of clash or tension in terms of like words that I've already used, like humanity versus the animal world or people versus nature. But we are part of nature. We are humans. We're as humans, we are animals. Uh, we're just animals that are so intelligent that we can think about the consequences of our actions, and we have the ability to bring about change that you know rabbits can't. <laughs> there are no Napoleons among rabbits. If I've no, said I mean. it once, I've said it a thousand times. <laughs> and so we can, you know, destroy en masse all species if we want, and. So it's easy to think of us as separate, but we really aren't. So I'm, I'm totally fascinated by that. I'm actually toying with the idea of a novel about um, the introduction of elk to, well, the reintroduction of elk to Arizona. We might have to do a podcast episode on that. This is a Um, novel that you're reading? That I am toying with writing. Oh, that would be awesome. Is that a true story? It's a true story. And it's, pretty bananas um arizona is famous for its elk hunting like we have some of the best elk hunting in the country
1: and no
0: elk alive in arizona today um can trace its ancestors back before like my grandfather's lifetime wow i did not know that and there were elk here before that it's a whole story we could talk about (laughs) But, um, but this is right in the like i said the sweet spot of kind of what i'm interested in
1: um, and, and you know this, we did the camel core too it's, it's I, coming I can, up
0: yeah you can see like this pattern that I'm fascinated by this is, a,
1: have... this is a trailer by the way for our next episode which is all about Jurassic Park <laughs> right
0: <laughs> life finds a way <laughs> um, well this particular episode of human history this snapshot of like the humans v animals kind of struggle um, is kind of sad which makes sense because it's a war And as we dive into this, um, the questions we're gonna ask of the Great um, Emu War are the questions that you'd ask of almost any war. Who are the parties? Who are the different sides? Why are they fighting? How are they matched? Is it a good, a close fight, David and Goliath, and who comes out on top in
1: the end? So in this case, we have two sides to the Emu War. And the first side is the population of emus. And we talked about this before. I don't even know if I'm saying this right. If it's emu, (laughs) if it's emu, I think I'm going to say emu. So as I understand it, emu
0: is popular outside of Australia, but it is greatly disliked inside Australia. Oh, no. Australians say emu. Um, not emu like a moo-moo cow, but emu like
1: mew like a cat or whatever. Okay, so. you've convinced me. I'll I'll uh, go in line with the Australians. And I don't want to be uncouth. <laughs> I'm guessing that I'm going to switch in
0: and out on accident. I do yeah. that with words sometimes. I pronounce the same word t- differently in the same sentence, so
1: who knows? <laughs> we'll see where we end up. So emus, emus, this species of bird is the second largest living bird by height. It is part of a group of birds Known as the ratites Which are flightless Large Long-legged birds <laughs> And there are some exceptions To the group uh, The kiwi is a small bird With short legs Still considered a ratite You can kind of Imagine what these are starting to look like right? Like big bodies Long feathers That kind of thing mm-hmm. Um, and the king of the ratite group is the ostrich, which is the largest living bird species on the planet. And the emu looks just like an ostrich. I, don't, I couldn't tell the difference by looking mm-hmm. at a photo. Maybe a zoologist could. Uh, they're just a little bit shorter. They can reach up to six feet tall, which is very tall. <laughs> they have soft feathers. They're brown colored. They can travel long distances and they can sprint when necessary at 30 miles an hour. Wow! Now remember that because I said when necessary and sometimes in war it is necessary to sprint. (laughs) Emus can eat and drink really infrequently. Weirdly enough they can go weeks without eating Hmm. and they can go long times without drinking and then when they do finally drink, they drink a lot of water all of they're like feathered camels right <laughs> they lay very large very beautiful very dark green eggs i never would have known this before tonight um you must look up a photo of one because it's really shocking it looks like a something out of game of thrones like a dragon egg yeah they're <laughs> beautiful so striking yeah And emus are endemic, which means coming from and only found in this region, endemic to Australia. Hmm. They are a cultural icon of Australia. They appear on Australia's coat of arms, which, by the way, I fully recommend looking up. It's a wild coat of arms that has an emu alongside a kangaroo (laughs) on opposite sides of the coat of arms oh i'm looking at it it is it's really cool wonderful yeah i like it a lot and (laughs) the emu also appears on australian coins which is uh, a really nice little nod um personality wise emus are very inquisitive birds and they don't mind humans if they see a human in the wild they actually may follow and observe the person um they've been known to like stalk people, not maliciously, but they will follow you around. Hmm. Um, the bird also features an indigenous Australian mythology and Aboriginal, uh, Aboriginal Australians would only kill an emu out of necessity. And they really frowned on anybody killing them for other reasons. Hmm. Uh, kind of like native Americans in the north. Uh, in North America using every part of the buffalo, quote-unquote. Aboriginals also used every part of the emu. And the emu fat would serve as an oil. They could use the bones to be shaped into knives and tools. They could use the feathers as body adornments. And they even use the tendons of the emu as a kind of string. Hmm. Emus have a very elaborate mating season, With all kinds of wild details and anybody interested in bird mating zoology uh, fully recommend reading that segment on (laughs) Wikipedia because it is just nuts. I didn't even I didn't even know some of the things that these birds do are possible, but they have a very elaborate mating season. And. It lasts for about five months. And after the mating scene is, season is over, they typically migrate from inland Australia outward to the coasts. And that's also something to keep in mind for later.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So that's side one of the emu war. Side two is
0: Australians. Are you about to tell us about the elaborate mating season of the
1: Australian? <laughs> <laughs> That one, I think, would earn us an explicit rating. <laughs> most, get kicked off of Spotify. Most podcast okay. systems. So I'll, I'll leave that one for now. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Australia, after World War I, Australia started offering land grants to discharged veterans from the war. And the grants were in order to take up farming in Western Australia. Now, if you're thinking of Australia and if you think of like any city in Australia, I'm gonna guess that you are probably thinking about a city in the South or the Southeast of Australia. (laughs) So places like Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, Adelaide, maybe you're even thinking of Canberra or Tasmania. These are all places in the Southeast of Australia. Uh, I'm going to guess that you were not thinking of anywhere in Western Australia because this region of the globe is very sparsely populated. And my understanding is it is kind of a hellhole. It's very desolate, very um, deserted. It's got like long tracks of um, like desert land that's very difficult to survive in. It's too dry, things like that um so it's a a very curious place because uh it does not seem very hospitable at all it sort of
0: reminds uh, me of um new mexico like i'll give a dollar to anybody who doesn't live in new mexico who can name me a city in new mexico that's not albuquerque or santa fe
1: oh yeah uh
0: you're not giving me a dollar (laughs) i don't know one (laughs) i mean i know some because i you know, I'm just across the border, but like outside of those two cities, there's basically nothing, and especially uh, eastern New Mexico is just oh, wow. Okay, it's I mean, it's just it's just antelope and rattlesnakes. I think like <laughs> it makes Arizona look like you know a metropolis, which is an oasis. Yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, yeah, so probably pretty comparable then to Western Australia. And the population density is very low. You can look up, my favorite thing to do is always to look up a population density map. <laughs> and if you look at Australia, it just ha- the people are just on the coasts. And Western Australia yeah. in particular is just totally empty. There's under one person per square mile for most of the area. Wow. Western Australia, by the way, is not just referring in this case to um, the section of Australia, but it's actually the name of one of Australia's states. And so it is a very large state. It takes up the whole left third of the country slash continent. And I was shocked to learn this, but Western Australia, the state, is actually the second largest subdivision of a country on Earth. Huh. Which is not a list I had ever considered. You know, it's like basically saying what are the biggest states or territories? Yeah. Um, I would guess first that, one like, is in, Oh, could you guess where the first one is? Siberia? It's close. It's in Russia somewhere. I, it's not Siberia, and I didn't look up what part of Russia it is. But one but of those big, empty you're spots online. in Russia. Yes, yeah. definitely. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, By the way, Western Australia's capital is Perth. And so if you were thinking of the city of Perth, props to you because you are in the right area of the globe here. Um, And something I think is cool about Western Australia is it's where you can find the oldest rocks in the world. So there's something called the Yilgarn Craton, which has rocks that are 4.27 billion years old which is basically as old as the earth was after it started cooling. So when the world was all lava and then it started to cool, those first rocks that it made, you can find them if you go to Western Australia. Wow. And that's where they send all these veterans to go to have some farms. So Australia says, thanks so much for serving in the war. We're glad you did it. Here's a farm. It's out in Western Australia. Go have a blast. And they do so, and the veterans go out there for about 11 years. And then, unfortunately, in 1929, the Great Depression hits Australia.
0: So Tyler's right. The Depression hits and that really impacts the second question that we'll ask of this war, which is what's being fought over? What are the what's contested? And the answer really is land and crops. Um, Like Tyler mentioned, there was these soldier settlement schemes where people who had served were specifically given. And even in some cases like children and widows of people who served in World War One, it was like. It might not be the best farmland, but it's free. So if you want it, here you go, right? That's kind of how that worked out because it's bad land, but it's free. Um, and along with that came government subsidies or at least promises of government subsidies. So they said, look, if you go out and farm this land, um, get some you know, wheat production or whatever, we will subsidize you. The government will give you payments um, as a way to, you know, it might not be super profitable gold profitable to go out there and do that but will subsidize you to to bolster the the industry in western australia um this is going to be kind of a throwback to the um, wickard v filburn episode because we have some issues of the government trying to stabilize an economy in the midst of falling wheat prices in the 1930s which is essentially Mm. the story of wickard v filburn um so there's all of these issues this takes us to october of 32 it was time to harvest the wheat. Um, but many farmers were contemplating and like publicly threatening, we're not going to take our crop to market. Like We'll harvest it and cut it down, but we're not going to go sell this stuff. We're not going to you know, give you guys the, the ability to buy what we've created, uh, give the public the ability to buy what we've created as a way of punishing the government because you said you were going to subsidize us. And that's the only reason we're here. The only reason this weed exists is because we were told we were going to get these payments. And it was it was just not a great situation. Um, and the government had totally failed to provide those promised subsidies. So it's a volatile time uh, politically. Like there was talk of succession um, that like Western Australia would go off and do its own thing and become its own oh, nation. Wow. Huh. Um and the economy world economy was in trouble australia's economy was in trouble and you've got all of these angry people who are like i moved to the middle of nowhere and i didn't even get the you know the promise the stuff i was promised for for doing that and then um enter the emus <laughs> um, the estimates that we have was that there were about twenty thousand birds um, and they were following the typical migration pattern that you alluded to earlier tyler of being in the inland areas generally and then headed heading towards the coasts for breeding purposes so during this great kind of migration the emus are off hidden in the center of australia which is pretty pretty empty of humans and they start making their way towards the coast which is where you're going to start encountering more and more australians um, australian people i should say humans Uh, the emus show up To these areas and what do you know someone has cleared away all the brush into these big you know open fields they have even planted delicious wheat and other crops and the (laughs) emus are like this is great and they literally have a field day (laughs) and they're like you know what a what a what a bounteous blessing (laughs) um all of this food in front of us um an interesting aspect of this that as we've discussed earlier in the episode, you won't be surprised to hear that I'm fascinated by not only did they eat the food, like break, you know, go and eat the wheat in the process, they destroyed the rabbit fences um, that were protecting the crops from rabbits, not from emus, which was just kind of insult to injury. Like not only did you break in and eat 40% of my crop, the remaining 60% is now vulnerable to rabbits. Um, We're going to take again, shouldn't be surprised, a quick, rabbits in Australia sidetrack really fast um but I just love the story of an introduced animal I don't know what it is but rabbits in Australia so they were introduced for food and um some were even let go as like wild rabbits brought in for like hunting like for fun oh we'll put a bunch of rabbits out on this you know ranch that we have and we can go hunt them um as early as 1827, there was a colony of feral rabbits that had been established by Europeans. Before that, you know, in the 1700s, we're talking no rabbits in Australia. Um, wild European rabbits were released in the Victoria area of Australia by in 1859. Um, by 1886, they were really exploding and had kind of reached areas where they had never been uh, introduced, meaning they were going and... Um, propagating themselves (laughs) by 1910 oh no sorry by 1920 it is thought that there were 10 (laughs) billion rabbits in australia (laughs) (laughs) i read that and i was like that can't be right that can't be right and then i was like they need 10 million but the population today is at least 200 million so It is correct that there were 10 billion rabbits in Australia in 1920, which is, you know, kind of the general time frame that we're talking about now. Um, Where did I find this? A website called Rabbit Free Australia, (laughs) Um, because it continues to be a problem. And at the top of their website, it says our vision an Australian landscape. Australian landscapes that are free of their most notorious pest, the European wild rabbit.
1: So when this website is counting down, they're trying to get to zero.
0: Yeah. Oh yeah. They want to completely eliminate this animal that was introduced in the, you know, early, early 19th century. And is just, I mean, 10, I can't imagine 10 billion of anything, let alone rabbits. No. Yeah. And you know, that could probably be its own story. Like the struggle in Australia to eliminate the rabbits. And uh,
1: and it sounds a- like it worked or, I mean, I don't know why they didn't continue to increase, but
0: yeah, they, there's some sort of been some sort of a, of a some
1: kind of curbing a, yeah. a curbing of it.
0: Yeah. I actually know for, I think I saw maybe a vice documentary on this or something, but Australia also has a feral cat problem. Whoa. Cats being brought over as pets and whatnot, and then just get out and are, you know, reproducing out in the wild and, so there's these huge bands of feral cats roaming Australia that are like destroying, you know, poultry if farms I'm, and all that kind of
1: stuff. If any of our Australian listeners could please call in. I would love to know if it's just like a big open zoo out there, because that's <laughs> really what it sounds like.
0: It truly, truly does. Sound there's like just that.
1: animals everywhere. <laughs> yeah
0: and so that's what these two armies the australians and the and the emus are fighting over is you know the the humans really would like to grow some wheat please and the emus are like we've been here for (laughs) you know since the lava (laughs) cooled down (laughs) and you came here and planted some wheat and we're probably just going to eat it thank you very much
1: So as with any war, um, the and I know there's got to be a war metaphor here that I'm missing out on. Is it the hand of fortune or what would you say? Like the uh, the pendulum can swing one way or the other. And at times you have an advantage and sometimes you have a disadvantage. I know there's a metaphor that I'm missing here. Yeah. the, The winds of fortune, maybe the winds of fortune, something along that that line. The winds of fortune um, do indeed blow strong, and this is no exception here in Western Australia. So we'll discuss a little bit of the advantages and disadvantages that each side of the war was facing. So you have the Australians, and the Australians in fighting the Emus have an advantage in that they have guns, whereas the Emus do not have guns. Thank the Lord. Thank you. The Lord, indeed, (laughs) that 20 million emus did not have, or is it 20,000? 20,000 emus did not have machine guns. Uh, The Australians did. They have guns. They have bullets. It's easy to shoot a gun, and it's also easy to wound an emu. So if you shoot an emu uh, and it takes a bullet, it's probably going to die. Um, Any gunheads out there, you may have heard of a Lewis gun. This is the specific type of gun that they were using. It's a machine gun that was used around the time of World War I. Um, And I think they had many kinds of guns, but the Lewis gun was one that specifically they called out. Um, So that's the human advantage here. Uh, Whereas the emus, on the other hand, even though the Australians have a lot of guns, the emus have a lot of population. So there's 20,000 of them. Uh, Even though you do have a lot of guns, it's still going to be hard to kill 20,000 emus. Now, on the other hand, the Australians have another advantage that the emus do not. And the Australians, their advantage is they have trucks. They can drive around pretty quickly uh, and they can grab hold of the emus, um, which even though the emus uh, can sprint very fast, a truck can also drive pretty fast. But trucks actually can also be a disadvantage, because in this case, they're driving in pretty rugged terrain. And so an advantage that the emu has against the Australians is emus can run very quickly on the terrain, whereas a truck is going to stumble on the terrain. And this actually happened in practice. So they'd be trying to drive the truck going pretty quickly run up on some emus, but then the truck hits some turbulence and it causes them to aim the guns poorly and they can't shoot their targets. (laughs) Uh, So point to the emus in that sense. Australians again have another advantage that the emus do not, which is uh, Australians are people that have geographical reasoning abilities. They look at the map and they realize, hey, we can try to wrangle these birds together and ambush them in a kind of trap. (laughs) And the the emus obviously are not clued into the trap, but um, so the Australians try to to wrangle them together. Now, on the other hand, emus have the advantage here in that they live outside all the time. (laughs) (laughs) They don't have to be indoors. They can just kind of go wherever and when it starts to rain which it did happen one day the emus scatter from the rain and they're just you know kind of running around and the humans are deterred by the rain because they have a hard time seeing through the rain to shoot uh point to the emus again and then another advantage that the australians had is that they had military leaders colonels generals in this case, who all got together to strategize and organize in the hunt against the emus. Uh, what they didn't realize, though, is that emus kind of have the same thing. <laughs> and <laughs> when it came about that they started attacking the emus, the emus, as a result, broke into little small tribes. And among the tribes, there would always emerge one leader who would kind of stay as like a sentry, and watch on guard. And if the humans ever came around, the leader emu would warn the others in the tribe and they would disperse and scatter, which made it very difficult for Australians driving their trucks with a gun to really catch anybody because all of the emus are running in different directions. Point to the emus again. And <laughs> I I've lost count at this point, but I think they've won pretty much all of these fights.
0: Yeah definitely um i also was struck to learn and we'll talk about this more in a second but as far as i can glean there were only 3 australian soldiers sent
1: oh wow there's only
0: 3 of them <laughs>
1: <laughs> now they were sent with 10,000 bullets okay well, but, already yeah. that's not enough bullets. <laughs> They're going to need two times as many bullets. Yeah, but it's all of the Australian emus against
0: three uh, three guys. I also am, now that it has entered my mind, I'm kind of obsessed with this image of an emu with a machine gun in like World War I
1: regalia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe he's smoking a cigarette.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like has one of those German helmets with a spike on it.
1: Yeah. uh It's just glorious.
0: So this leads us to kind of our last question. Who wins? Tyler, like you laid out, there's some really strong advantages on both sides. Um, And so it it goes down like this. The military agrees after a lot of negotiation and red tape, because as you can imagine, they're not super keen on just like, okay, here's a bunch of machine guns, farmers in the west of Australia, take them and go do what you want. Um, they decided, okay, we'll send in these two machine guns, we'll send some soldiers. Um, and the Minister of Defense at the time had some stipulations. Um, military personnel had to be the ones running the guns, which makes some sense. Um, all of the, the transporting of these these machine guns and the troops um, has to get paid for by the Western Australian government. And the farmers are going to have to provide the food and accommodation for the soldiers and pay for the bullets Um, which they were willing to do because they were literally getting overrun with these Australians Um, this was approved to help the farmers Um, some of the collateral um, reasons why this also might have been approved like I said one one was to maybe ease kind of these um, this argument for a breakaway western Australia state like you know if they felt that they were being abandoned and totally taken advantage of these farmers out there um, this was a way to kind of like, no, we care about you. Look, we're going to try We'll send you some machine guns to try and save you from these birds. Um, and then another reason was they thought, well, this will give us, we might send these soldiers and they'll come back as like expert marksmen in machine gun. It's good target practice. Um, and so, you know, maybe that's like a collateral benefit for the uh, Australian army. So armed with two machine guns, 10,000 rounds of ammunition, this, it's kind of like a three-person little um, squad goes in. Um, it was under the command of somebody named GPW Meredith. And um, he had two soldiers under him who were, who were his subordinates. It was supposed to start in October of 1932. Um, however, a big heavy rain came through. And this was a logistical problem for the humans. But it also meant that the emus kind of were lay, laid low, weren't congregating in the fields weren't as easy to find. So it got pushed um, until November. There were two kind of attempts to go out and let's, you know, genocide us some emus. Um, The first attempt was basically a disaster. Um, This GWP Meredith guy um, goes out. The emus were hard to find. Um, the guns didn't have enough range when they did find them. They could pretty quickly run f- so far away that like the machine guns couldn't reach them. Um, and the uh, emus were actually surprisingly hard to kill. Um, they were they could be hit by several bullets and, and keep running.
1: Um, I didn't wonder, yeah.
0: Yeah, um, apparently they were quite tough. And also the guns jammed um, at several points. So this, again, it's kind of like they went to the Bay of Pigs um school of planning like things just weren't great i hadn't really thought they you know the idea of just like wool we'll machine gun huge you know pastures of birds sounds okay but in reality like you said what are we going to do mount it on a truck the truck yeah. is bouncing it's just really kind of impractical so after a few embarrassing days the government's like okay give us the guns back we're bringing our soldiers back this waste of time and money um, and it was embarrassing because there were these dismal dismal reports in the newspapers about this crazy plan that really wasn't working. Um, the most optimistic reports, um, which were probably not accurate, was that maybe as many as 300 birds were killed, which is, you know, of basically no use to anybody um, because of the scale of the, of the bird problem they had. Um, a... Um, a an, an ornithologist commenting on this at the time, um, kind of in retrospect, put it this way, and I love I love this. The machine gunner's dreams of point blank fire into serried masses of emus were soon dissipated. The emu command had evidently ordered guerrilla tactics, and its unwieldy army soon split into innumerable small units that made use of the that made use of the military equipment uneconomic. Um, so. It's exactly, it was the Fidel Castro strategy, right? Like <laughs> take to the hills, <laughs> yeah. split up, um, you know, fight, fight in small groups and using guerrilla tactics. Um, so it, it did not go well. There was a second attempt, however. It was rela- relaunched on November 12th. Um, I don't know, maybe they, the military took the weekend to think things over because they withdrew them on the 9th. And then they were like, okay, on the 12th, we're going to send them back in. Um, so it was reauthorized on the 12th and on the 13th, 1932, they take to the field. Um, and there was some success. With um, in the first two days, there were approximately 40 emus killed, and they were kind of, um, you know, encouraged by that. Um, but it, it definitely increased by the 2nd of December. The soldiers were killing approximately 100 emus a week. Mm. Um, and it was in a report, it was claimed that the soldiers had killed. Um, Up to that point, almost a thousand birds with almost 10,000 rounds. So 10 bullets per bird. (laughs) Um, In addition, it was claimed that 2,500 wounded birds had subsequently died as a result of injuries. So they weren't killed at the moment, but went on to die. I don't know how you'd count that or, you know, think that maybe they were like discovered in other places. Um, But even so, that's a pretty small drop in the bucket. Um, Looking back again, this would have been 1935, so a few years after this, a a local newspaper reflected that although the use of machine guns had been criticized in many quarters, the method proved effective and saved what remained of the wheat. So there were attempts by the humans to kind of spin this as like, yeah, it it worked. Um, But I would definitely say to answer the question that this started off with was this was definitely an emu victory. Mm-hmm. um there are now about at least three quarters of a million emus in australia um i in trying to get to the bottom of exactly how many there are there um that was kind of a number that was often thrown about what they said this animal is of so little concern that nobody's out there counting them you know we're, we count the pandas because we really care about how many pandas there are but nobody cares how many emus there are in australia because there's so many so We think, you know, about 750,000 emus, but it could be well above that because we just don't know. So in the long run, the emus are doing just fine. Um, As time moved on from the 30s, they did try some other methods for um, saving the crops. So if we can't defeat the emus, can we save the crops in some other way? One way, um, another sort of sad way, if you're an emu, was they offered individual bounties. So instead of us coming in and killing these um birds for you how about we just pay you for every time you can prove to us that you killed a bird and so um over a six-month period in 1934 so just a few years after or about a year after the machine guns were sent in to western australia about 57,000 bounties were claimed in a six-month period so they they offered a bounty and said if you can prove to us that you killed a bird then we'll give you a little bit of money and that seemed Mm -hmm. to be quite effective um but kind of hilariously in the fifties, the army was still transferring ammunition to the farmers. They were still like, yeah, we should, you know, get this huge truckload of bullets and send it out to the soldiers or to the, the farmers in Western Australia. They still need it. Um, but fascinatingly, and maybe kind of like a duh, palm to the forehead moment. Um, what seemed to have eventually ended up working even better was just emu proof fences. Um, Mm they're flightless birds they're really big and so they can't really squeeze through little gaps and so fences seem to have um again there's not really a definitive answer on wikipedia but um fences are kind of hinted at as having been the ultimate solution to this problem like we just like i said we couldn't defeat the enemy so maybe we can just protect the wheat or the, the plants or whatever. Um, Emus are now protected under federal legislation. They've been reintroduced to areas um, in Australia where they'd been previously eradicated, including Tasmania, the island off of Australia. Um, Those um, Tasmania had had emus previously, but um, European settlers had wiped them out. And so they've now been reintroduced. And the emu is doing just peachy. And so... um, in that sense, in the big picture, the emus definitely won this war, um, and I don't know. I just think this is such a fun or there's obviously very sad elements to this, but it's a fun story because it's like who could have thought that like soldiers with machine guns were going yeah. to lose to like six foot birds that just run around out in the outback? But they totally did. Like they, you know, you'd think that humanity is just kind of this steamroller that like oh yeah if we want to kill all the emus we can yeah and uh turns out we couldn't like we we were just it was literally a force of nature that we were like well i guess we'll just figure out another way because we can't we can't take the emus you know we couldn't take them on
1: yeah that is really fascinating i think that like off the cuff that's my favorite thing about this story is i love a story where like humans try to destroy nature and they lose. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Even though they did kill, unfortunately, a lot of emus, uh, which is really sad. It's like no one thought to do a fence in the first place. you know. <laughs> um, and, you know, we even discussed earlier the original Aboriginal Australian wisdom, mm-hmm. which was do not kill an emu unless it's absolutely necessary, you know? Yeah. And then in the 1900s, it was like, that's out the window. They're just gonna try and eradicate them, which just seems so unwise, you know, and kind of that inhuman.
0: Yeah, and and I think that's another reason why this type of story intrigues me because we just can't learn. Like, well, we've got all yeah we've got all these rabbits. It's a problem because we, you know, brought a species over here and changed the population levels and messed with everything. But surely it won't matter if we just kill all the emus. Like, I don't know what the result of killing all the emus in Australia would be. But it probably wouldn't be good. Like, no, you know, for sure. yeah, <laughs> I don't know if it would cause like dingo populations to crash or whatever, or like, well,
1: but something for sure, right? Something, because something, yeah, because of the circle of life and the food chain and everything, yeah, yeah.
0: Like, would would um, how would it affect kangaroos and wallabies? Like, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. we're, it's just like we're just constantly like creating problems to solve problems, which just creates more problems and. So yeah and to solve a...
1: something so small, too, it's like <laughs> yeah. this is relatively just a non issue that they're eating some of the wheat,
0: <laughs> yeah, I also like to consider who declared like if if we're you know the history has framed this in some um <laughs> aspects as a war, so who declared war? <laughs> Because in some ways it was the, obviously it was the humans, right? We rolled in with machine guns and trucks
1: and we're like. But they're going to say, hey, it was the emus who invaded.
0: Yeah, it was the war of emu aggression.
1: (laughs) (laughs) We were just planting
0: our wheat and then these hordes of terrifying six foot birds came in. And, you know, we're not going to stand for that kind of incursion on our soil. (laughs) Thanks for listening. Our only footnote today is about the largest bird to ever exist. Tyler mentioned that the ostrich is the largest bird around today, but about a thousand years ago there existed a bird called the elephant bird. Scientists estimate that this bird reached weights of about 1,600 pounds and stood almost 10 feet tall, making it the world's largest bird by weight. Thanks so much for listening. We love making these
1: episodes and we'll talk at you soon.